Well, we're in our series, When the World Turned Upside Down, and we're walking through the New Testament book of Acts. And the timing, I believe, couldn't be any more relevant or any better for us. And, and here's why. Let me explain this. During the first century, when these events are taking place, the tension in the air is thick. You have to understand that that there is animosity and confusion during these days. There is misinformation that's being spread. There's manipulation happening in all sorts of different corners of the world. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you live. People are coming to, to realize life is not turning out the way that we expected. In fact, if you were born during this time, you were either part of, of, of the empire or you were part of uh, a group of people who were being crushed by the empire. You either had power or control or you were being crushed by those in control. You were oppressed. But then there's this third way that is being presented to humanity in the first century. There's this rabbi from Galilee who arrives on the scene and he begins to describe this new kind of life. There's a new way to relate to other people. There's a new way to navigate our days. There's a new way to understand our creator. There's a new way to find purpose and meaning in our lives. And then um, this rabbi makes this promise. He, he tells this ragtag group of early adopters. He looks at them. They're listening to him. They're hanging on his words. They're hungry for something new. And he says this. It's in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, there's two components to this promise. The, the first thing he says is, well, you're going to be my witnesses. Um, but basically, he's doing this. He's saying, you're going to show people this new way to, to live. You're going to show people this new way to be. Um, and, and through this process, you're going to show them that that way is actually through me. That, that's what he's talking about here. In fact, just this week, uh, I heard the story of, of somebody who became a follower of Jesus just like five or six years ago. And the reason she did was because she saw something in a neighbor. She literally saw a neighbor who seemed to have something that she didn't. And she was just observing this third way taking place in another person's life and said, I want whatever that person has. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what the rabbi is speaking of. You won't just tell people about this life. You will be a living, breathing illustration of this life. And on top of that, what he describes to them, what he says to them is this. He says that this life, this, this third way, it's going to flow out of a power that you will be given. Uh, here's what's really interesting. That word that's translated power, it's the Greek word dynamos, which literally is the word we get dynamite from. Um, do you think Jesus knew that what he was about to do would be explosive? Do you think he understood that it was going to turn the world upside down Absolutely he did. There is going to be this power, and you will be my witnesses. The impact of you living with that kind of power, understanding what I've taught you, will have seismic reverberations throughout the entire known world. That's what he's talking about. He says it's going to start here in Jerusalem, and then it's going to, it's going to have a blast zone that just sort of continues out, and it's going to be Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So, so just so you know this, this is what the book of Acts is all about. This is this promise being brought to reality. This is all of these things coming true. This is what happens when, when a group of people become empowered by this, 
this living example of the third way in a culture that's broken and in a time full of tension. This is what happens when people suddenly start living this out and, and people are watching and they're going, well, my life's not working. Why is yours going the way that it is? Um, if you look at Acts, the culture, the world got turned upside down. And here's what's critical for us to understand. This is so important. This is not a history lesson. This is an invitation. We don't read Acts to, to study history. We read it, read it to receive an invitation. This is an invitation for you and I to enter into this third way of living. And I really don't believe that it could come at a better time for us. Um, you know, the dysfunction of our culture right now, um, the, the frailty of our society, all of it is on display right now. Um, you turn on the news, you, you read the paper, um, if you still read the paper, and all you see is just the dysfunction. You see the brokenness. I mean, the, the inability of our cultural idols and our societal systems to, to offer us a sense of real satisfaction, all of that has been exposed during this time. They were never intended to do what we've turned them into. And so we need another way to move through our lives. That's what this whole season is showing us. We need another way. We need another, another narrative that we align our life to other than the ones that culture has given us. And right here in front of us, we have this invitation. We are inverted or invited to, to, to invert the world around us. We're going to turn it right side up. We live in this upside down world. We're actually turning it right side up by receiving this invitation. And what is so great about Acts this is so good about it, is how it's fleshed out in the everyday dust, the dirt of, of everyday life in the world. Um, you know, oftentimes we can sort of read these things and think that it was some sort of utopian life. It wasn't. This is no utopia. The characters uh, in the stories, they're flawed. They're broken, just like you and I. They got family histories and mistakes and all sorts of things that play into it. The circumstances that they're living in, they're less than ideal. And yet somehow, in the middle of all that dust, in the middle of the dirt, in the middle of the brokenness and the messiness, God begins to move. Now, what was surprising and I think almost surreal about what we saw last week as, as we watched together was how powerfully these events connect with, with where we are right now. In fact, very specifically, this moment that we're in, if you watched, you know that Jesus gave that promise, but then he also told the disciples, he said, I want you to wait I want you to be in this holding pattern. I want you to sit in this space, and I just want you to wait to receive this promise. I'm going to do this thing. You're going to receive this power. You're going to be these kinds of people. I've got something for you, but first, you're going to have to wait. And, and what we explored last week was this very challenging but very true idea, and that's that oftentimes God moves powerfully after a season of waiting. So we may be waiting right now, knowing that God is about to do something in our midst. But then what? What, what do we do when we hear Jesus say, wait? Well, there's actually meaning in waiting. You can actually lean into that season. What do you do during that season? What, what, do, you, what do you engage in? I, I want us to read what happens next in the story because it perfectly informs what people living the third way do right now. If you're the new humanity, if, if you're making this thing a reality, what do you do in a season like this? It tells us. And so I'm going to read the text, and then I'm going to talk about the text together with us. And, and I just want to remind you kind of where this thing begins before we get to the section for this week. It, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, he says this. 
He says, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. That's really important to hold on to. He tells them, I don't want you to leave. I want you to wait. And then after a few more instructions, a little more conversation, the bulk of what we looked at last week, um, they're asked, why are you watching as Jesus ascends into heaven? And that's where we pick up in verse 12. So verse 12 of Acts chapter 1 says this. It says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons who was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his, with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akadelma, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." So one of the men who accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So, this is so interesting. And yet I know um, you're probably wondering to yourself, what does this have to do with us? Like, this is such a strange story. I mean, how does a story that basically ends with the disciples rolling dice (laughs) to make a decision actually encourage us in a time like this? And and even more so, how does it it help us unlock or unpack this promise that God wants to fulfill in our day and time? It's a really good question to wrestle with, and there's actually a really good answer or several answers that are embedded in the middle of this. There's there's three things that we see here, and I just want to point them out, and we'll talk about each of them. The first one is we see in this the connection between obedience and outpouring. The second thing we see is the prayerful pursuit of God and how it precedes this powerful move of God. There's this prayerful pursuit, and then there is this powerful move of God. They happen in that order. And then we see the faith that we have in the meantime, and and I'm looking forward to that part of this. So let's talk about the first one. And let me just start by saying that there um, there is some tension in this. As I describe this, I want to make sure I'm really clear on this, and here's why. Um, I I realize that in the church and and in history, um, and even because of a lot of Christians in the past, there is an image of God that has been created that um, paints him as sort of demanding and fickle. And and this has caused a lot of people to either live in bondage to religious ideas, and so they're they're sort of forced to live in this religious obligation, or it's caused other people to just simply reject the God of Christianity, the God of Judaism, the God of the Bible. Um, So let me just be clear about something relating this, because the Bible is really clear on this. God's love is unconditional. 
Um, that is not what we're talking about here. There are no conditions to God's love. We don't earn God's love. We don't earn God's affection. We can't lose his love. We can't lose his affection. There is nothing, Paul says in the book of Romans, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Um, and, and these days, I just want to say this, when something gets said that sounds otherwise, sounds like someone saying, well, you have to obey God for him to love you, I sort of bristle and I have to respond to that. So I want to be clear, that's not what I'm saying here. This is zero connection between, there's zero connection between your obedience and God's love of you. That's really important for you to understand. However, when you begin to reverse engineer the significant, unique moves of God, I'm going to use that, that language to talk about this, a move of God. When you reverse engineer them, you consistently see a significant connection between obedience and outpouring. Um, including this text that we look here. So I'm talking about history. I'm talking about different places in the Bible, but especially what we see here. Jesus says to the disciples, I want you to stay in Jerusalem. And the first thing they do after he ascends is walk from the place they're standing back into the city of Jerusalem, which, by the way, is no easy thing for them to do. And imagine how disorienting this must have been for them. They're 40 days with him after the resurrection. Jesus is teaching. Jesus is, is showing them things. Um, but now in this moment, he's gone, and he's made it clear he's gone for a while. That has to stir some uncertainty. He's already left them once, and now he's leaving them again. And Jerusalem, the place he's telling them to stay, it is the epicenter of activity for all of those people that were opposed to Jesus. So, so you can imagine when Jesus says, I want you to stay here, and then he leaves, there had to be this moment of, is he serious? If he's not here, who's going to protect us? If he's not here, how do we do this? So, so I realize it's a really small detail, but this is the beginning of what God is about to do. And I point this out because so often I think it's the same for us. See, obedience does not impact the love that God has for us. Let me reiterate that. But it does influence the relationship that he has with us. In fact, that's not just true of God. That's true in relationships across the board for us. I'll just give you this example. When my girls were young, I'd ask them to do things, and they usually would do it. But if they didn't do something I wanted— if they forgot, if, um, if they just plain broke a rule, did that change my love for them? Obviously not. It doesn't change my love for them. I mean, never, not in the slightest. My love for my daughters is unconditional. But would it impact the relationship? Well, certainly it would, right? I mean, it might stall my trust in them. It might make me think, oh, I can't really trust them with that until I see something different. Uh, I might realize um, that I have to go back and explain other things to them, that they're not as far along as I thought they were. I, I might even have to have a moment uh, where I have to sit down and, and have a hard conversation with them. The opposite is true um, if they did what I asked, right? The other, the other side of this is also true. If they did what I asked, it's like, oh man, you can be trusted. Actually, I've seen you be faithful. I know I can trust you. And so if I can trust you with this, well, then I can also trust you with that. So that's part of this. And there's this weird thing that begins to happen that the more they obey, the more I trust. And the more I trust, the more freedom I give them. So there's this connection that we're seeing in the text between obedience and a move of God. Obedience to God, it seems to create this space for the Holy Spirit to, to touch human flesh, to, to interact with humanity, and then create something that's beautiful, something that's new. And the correlating truth is this, that disobedience will actually close that space. 
which I think makes this very important for us to consider. See, I'll just be very transparent with you. There are times when I find myself asking God to speak, like, God, would you move? Would you shape a situation? Would you give me direction? And then I realize he already did. Like, it's, it's just that maybe I didn't like what he said, or maybe I'm actually disobeying. Maybe I'm willfully just sort of ignoring it. Uh, maybe I'm just not paying attention to what, to what it was. And so I don't take that step. That's why this is so important. Some of us, we have this, and I'm just going to say, some of you watching right now, you may just be watching because you're curious about God. You're curious about the church and Jesus. And, and he's been nudging you. There's been strange things that have been happening to you. Maybe someone I had a conversation, there's a book you read, there's something. And so you're starting to have these thoughts and it seems as if God's drawing you towards himself. And maybe at some point he's actually invited you to take a step closer. Maybe it's something you thought, I should do that, but then you've stopped and you've backed off. And then you say things like this, well, God, I really wish you would show me who you are. And then others, um, maybe you took those steps. Um, maybe you've even had a past encounter with the power of God, but now you're in another place. Maybe it's stale. Maybe your relationship with God is cold, and you're asking God to show up and do something in your life. But then there's this thing back there. There's this step that he asked you to take, that he called you to. There's this thing he said, I want you to move on from that, or maybe you should lean into this, or maybe you should make this sort of decision. But at some point, you also just sort of stopped walking. Somebody once asked me this. They said, um, can my actions block or hinder a tangible experience of God? And my answer to that person then and my answer to that today, based on everything I've seen and everything I've experienced, is yes, because there's a connection. There's a connection. So I just want to pause here for a moment and let you think about this. Is there a step you feel like God prompted you to take? Um, kind of a don't leave Jerusalem sort of thing. And you've just let it hang out there. I mean, maybe it was just like, hey, one of these days I'm going to go check out church and you've just not done it. Or, or maybe it was, hey, I actually need to go invest my life into this thing. I need to make a decision about what I'm going to do. No matter what it is or where it falls in the spectrum of faith, can I just encourage you, whatever that thing is, and, and, and can I ask you to just consider what would it look like if you went back and you took that step? Um, I'm going to invite you to exercise some faith and lean towards whatever that thing is. What is that? Now, maybe it's time to be obedient to what God already did. So, so that leads us to the second thing. And, and this is really important and has way too much alliteration in it, but um, I'm a preacher and I can't help it. So the second thing we see in this text is this prayerful pursuit of God preceding a powerful move of God. I know it sounds very sing-songy, but it's important for us to understand that a prayerful pursuit of God precedes a powerful move of God. We see that again over and over. There's this incredible pattern that you see. Again, when you re reverse engineer the things that you've seen God do, the move of God, they are oftentimes, if not always, preceded by prayer. Now, let me also be really clear about this. Um, what I'm not saying is that prayer is like the secret weapon, you know, that that if you just pray and you pray really hard, that you can somehow coerce God to bend his will and do what you want him to do. It's, it is not like that. That's not what I'm saying. And I think certain versions of that thinking exist in lots of different places. Like if we just pray enough and pray hard enough, um, then somehow God will do what I want him to do. And maybe the issue is that we're just not praying enough. That's, that's not good thinking. Um, in fact, I would even say this. If the reason you are praying 
is because it's some sort of step in a formula, you've already lost the plot. And this is simply about pursuing God, a prayerful pursuit of God. This is about opening up the relationship. This is about spending time with God. This is about pursuing him. And it makes total sense. Um, if you talk about your relationship with another person, but you never actually talk to that person, you actually don't have a relationship. And conversation and communication are the cornerstones of what it means to be in a relationship. And so if you're not talking, you're actually not in a relationship. So these disciples, um, Jesus says, Jerusalem, and they go to Jerusalem. And then when they get there, this is what we read. Let me just reiterate this. It says in verse 13 that when they entered Jerusalem, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, names all the different people. And then verse 14 says, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. I just think that's so critical. They were obedient and then they were prayerful. They pursued God in prayer. They're in this position where they are just ready for this emergence. Like God's made a promise, but we're just going to continue to seek him. They're ready for transformation. Into what? They don't even really know yet. They have no understanding. They're just saying, God, I know there's something, and so I'm just going to pursue you. I am going to engage my relationship with you. By the way, I think this is where God loves disciples to sit, just especially in times of waiting, just leaning in to him and, and prayer, praying. Um, I could talk for hours about prayer, and, uh, and I just want to describe it in its most simple form right now. Um, because people can get really convoluted ideas, especially uh, the longer you're around church, the more complex it seems to get. But prayer, quite simply, is just us sitting and talking with, with, with someone. Think, think of it that way. It's, it's listening in a conversation. It's um, just sitting in someone's presence, just sort of being aware that they're there. There's a comfort. There's an awareness. And, and, and this is really big. It's having your heart or your, your, your mind, your life um, aligned and touched by someone. Like th There are times um, when I'm praying, and I'll experience this moment where it's like, oh, there he is. Like, I'll be praying, and there's a sudden realization. Like, I become aware, increasingly aware of God's presence, and, and there's this connection. There's this alignment. It, it's almost like this. There are times when I'm praying when it's like, um, I sense that I've kind of wandered into God's backyard and I've started gardening with him. Like all of a sudden we're working alongside of each other. I see his heart. I see what he's all about. By the way, um, that usually happens when I'm not talking, which is also a good thing to think about when it comes to prayer. And there, there are exceptions. There are sometimes when I, I start praying and there's words that are coming out of my mouth and it's like I'm completing God's sentences, like I'm on the same wavelength. But more often than not, those moments of intimacy, it's when I'm silent, just making observations, listening. So the people of the third way, they, they come to life when they pray, when they just spend time like sitting, listening, thinking, talking, being open to God. So I, I got this idea, and I'll just say I got it from my son-in-law because about a week ago, he did something on Instagram called the Prayer Walk Challenge. Uh, everyone's doing these crazy challenges. People challenged me to do push-ups. All these things are happening right now. But he posted this, and, and he challenged people to pray together but separate, obviously, because of our time. Um, but he invited them all. He said, I want you on a specific day. I'm going to challenge you to challenge others to walk your neighborhood and pray for the city. And so on that day, at that time, all these different people 
um, went and walked their neighborhoods and they were all praying. And I saw pictures that people were posting and prayers that people were writing. And they were just sort of walking through the neighborhood, conversing with God, listening for his heart, seeing what he was up to. Um, and then I was reading this passage over the last week or so, and I just thought, well, you know, we can't gather in an upper room like the disciples did, but we can do this. We can do what my son-in-law did. And so um, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get really practical for a second. I'm going to challenge you. But I'm not just going to challenge you to do a prayer walk. I'm actually going to challenge you to challenge people in your life to join you in doing a prayer walk. Um, we're we're going to kick some stuff out this week on social media and via email, some resources that you can use. But this next Thursday, we're going to pray and we're going to walk separate but together. Um, by the way, it also happens to be the National Day of Prayer. Um, but based on everything that we see in the book of Acts, there is prayer that precedes this powerful move of God. And so we're just thinking, why can't we do this together? Why can't we walk our neighborhoods and, and walk our streets and pray for the schools and the institutions and the businesses and the houses and just do all of those things as we walk and pray? And so I'm looking forward for, to doing that with you, and I challenge you to do it, but I challenge you more than that to challenge others to join you. Um, that leads us to the final point of this whole thing, and it's found in the last part of this passage. And it's the faith that we have in the meantime. And I think this is really good for us right now. Um, this whole story closes with what appears to be the disciples rolling the dice um, to discern God's will about who should take Judas's seat among the 12 disciples. Now, there's all sorts of speculation and scholarly opinions on why they needed to replace Judas, and there was more going on behind the scenes in terms of structure and what was going to happen as they were being sent out. Um, but this whole story, when you look at it, it's really strange on the surface. But there's actually something really beautiful and meaningful in the depths of this. Let me, let me point that out by going back to what I was saying about my daughters and their obedience. Um, if I was still asking my daughters to obey basic tasks, and if, I was, if they were still dependent on me for some simplistic direction for their lives, um, I would probably lose my Dad of the Year award. I, I got that uh, a couple of years ago. But, um, but at some point, um, my daughters, they, they started doing things for themselves. And my ways became their ways. And then as we grow in relationship, they know me, and now they even anticipate what I desire. Um, we, we have begun to share the same heart and the same mind. And, and because of that, they can take action. In fact, they can take action on my behalf. Now, are, are they certain that they're doing exactly what I want? No. But are they confident? Yes. I want you to understand that there's a difference between being certain and being confident. Um, certainty means that you have detailed blueprints, you have all the facts, you know exactly what to do, but confidence means this. It means I know his heart, I have a sense of what he wants, and I'm going to discern that I believe this is what he actually desires. So here in the book of Acts, we read that the disciples, they've been obedient. They're saying, man, if you want us to do this, we'll do it. And and they're pursuing God in prayer. They're just like spending time and saying, God, we want to just know you and sit with you and be in relationship with you. And then here in the last part of this, they begin to take action. But it isn't random. It actually flows out of this illustration I've just given you. If you've been obedient, if you've been in relationship, you get to know the heart of the Father. And so you can move in confidence. If you know the heart of the Father, you can do something in the meantime while you wait. It's like us right now in this season. It's like us saying, I know God has something for me on the other side of the waiting. 
but I also have an idea of what he might be up to now in the moment. It might be us saying, God's doing something, and we're going to see this later, but right now, I think I know him well enough that I can do some things that he'd love to see me do. So this moment, um, when they roll the dice, when they cast the lots, it is not, God, you know something about one of these guys that we don't. It was literally, here are two people, and they're both great. But at some point, we just have to trust you with the results. We have to trust you with the outcome. So, so that thing they do there at the end, that is not an expression of uncertainty. It's actually an expression of trust. They're basically saying, hey, God, we did our part. Here's a couple of great options. We're going to trust you with the outcome and just believe that you are in far more control than we are. This, this season, this holding pattern that we're in, this waiting, it is not easy. But we are not left twiddling our thumbs. We have a moment to see. We have a moment to ask, God, are there things that you've already invited me into and I've been ignoring you? Are there things you've asked me to engage and I just haven't been paying attention? We have space in this time to pursue his heart and, and, and move from saying, I don't know what God is doing to being a person who says, you know what? I actually know God well enough to, to be able to maybe think he's moving here and maybe I see God over there. We get to become those kinds of people. We have an opportunity to walk in confidence. So I want this to sink in. What does all this mean for you? It has some sort of meaning for you, but what is that? Um, we're we're going to play some worship now, and uh, I just want to give you some time to reflect or, or pray or sing along or take these questions and just wrestle with them. And then when this is over, I'm going to offer us a benediction. Pray.
your name this morning we praise you we worship you and we thank you from the depths of our hearts that we're a part of your redemption story Jesus that you made a way for us to return to you we love you Lord we worship you we thank you God's church said amen well I want you to know that each week our team is preparing um, daily questions or insights that dig deeper into the text. And uh, those things, they're available on our website. If you go where the sermons are located, there's actually some boxes below that have some additional content. You can find those questions there. Um, with each message, there's a, a series of those things. And then on social media as well, each day there's prompts, there's questions, there's ways that you can dig deeper. And so I wanna encourage you to continue thinking about this week as we move on to next week and what we're gonna see in Acts chapter two. Um, but now let me offer you this as, uh, as we close. Um, may you enter into this joyful, life-giving, obedient trust of God and may you experience the relationship with him that you were created to have. And may you now 
find things, beautiful things to do in the meantime. Love you guys. Have an amazing, amazing week, and we'll see you again soon.